enthusiastic. <laughs> Some of us have already started the Christmas cheer. I can see. Uh, hey, let me give you my uh, gratuitous Christmas humor. This is a dialogue. I'm going to let you into a dialogue between Santa and a single mom, okay? You get to hear the, the intimate exchange. Single Santa comes to the single mom. What do you want for Christmas? Single mom says, I want a magical unicorn. Santa says, be realistic. What do you really want for Christmas? Santa mom, the single mom says, I want five undisturbed minutes each day so I can drink hot coffee and pee in peace. Santa says, what color magical unicorn do you want? Okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, today I'm going to kind of touch on something practical. Uh, since I, I, I know this is going to, sometimes it's, it, it, when, when you teach, it's hard to, to find something relevant to everybody. But I think today, what I'm going to talk about is going to be relevant to all of us. And uh, what it is, is what do you do, how do you handle difficult people that you encounter at Christmas? How do you handle these people that show up at our Christmas parties, family get-togethers, uh, office parties, whatever, right? So let me, give you, let me give you six, which I could give you about 60. I'm going to give you six types of people that you're going to encounter probably uh, this evening or tomorrow, or you've already encountered them this month. You're going to meet them at the New Year's Eve party, okay? So this is a holiday teaching. First, you're going to, find, you're going to meet the political beast, right? You know that person? They come into, they sit down at the, uh, they, sat, they already sat down at the Thanksgiving meal, and they already told you that you're going to hell because you voted for Trump, right? And they just launched into a tirade about your support of Hillary, or whatever it is, whatever you believe, they don't believe it, and they, that's all they want to talk about at the Christmas party, right? And of course, everybody just is, you know, kind of fed up with that. Then there's the person who's the control freak, Right? They have to have everyone sitting at certain places, and, you know, uh, you know what it's like, right? Anybody? Okay, there's somebody waving back there, and they're pointing at themselves, and they're going, that's me. All right, that's good. Now, some of these people are, in fact, you. Uh, you might not realize it, but you are some of these people, too. Third, uh, do you ever sit down next to the oversharer? The oversharer, you know what I mean? They, they tell you about the colonoscopy that they just had. <laughs> right? You, and you're going, oh, too much information, you know. Uh, that's an awkward moment. And there, there seems to be an overshare. I've been the overshare. Then there's the gossip. You know the gossip? They sit down and they start telling you about everybody that's not in the room and all their problems, right? And all their faults and all the secrets and where the bodies are buried and, you know, everything, right? And you just, again, too much information. You just kind of sit there like, with this deer in the headlights look on your side, like, where, someone, someone rescue me. You know, and they get you in a corner and they do it. Come here. And they start whispering all the stuff to you. And that's just very awkward, isn't it? And you don't want to know that stuff. Uh, then there's the person who's the grave digger. The grave digger is the person that brings up all the bad stuff that happened. You know, that what happened, how they were treated by, the, by uncle so-and-so. And they just constantly bring it up. It's like they can't drop it. They can't leave it. They don't know what to do with it. Then there's the person, and this is the one everyone will identify with, 
there's always somebody in every group that can push your buttons, right? It may not be one of these people because there's the angry person, there's the drunk, right? I mean, there's just tons of these types in our gatherings. What do you do? What do you do? Some of you are going, I hope you're going to tell me because <laughs> you, you've taken to my, first, my worst nightmare. It's going to happen tonight, and I hope you have something that's helpful to say. So as I'm describing some of these people, again, I, could, I, I had a long list, I thought. I'm just going to give them six because I could probably give them about 60. Are any faces popping into your mind as I say this? Right? Anybody's face is just floating in front of you. You can't even see me. Their face is just there. It's going throbbing. It's boom, boom, boom. Right? And you can hear their voice. And you're just responding to them already. Like you just feel it in your body right now. Let's together, let's have a therapy session. Where are you feeling it in your body right now? No, I'm just kidding. I don't want you to say that. All right. This is a little audience participation moment. When you encounter that person, or when you've seen that person in your gathering, so I won't ask you to say what you do, but how have you seen people respond to them? Just call it out. Avoid them? Okay, avoided them. Like you see them walking in the room, and you just go right into the other room, <laughs> right? And they're walking around the room, following you. You're just like, they're just, a, you, they're just chasing you around the house, trying to corner you, right? And you go outside. You walk around outside in the cold and the snow just to avoid them. That's good. That's it. That's Probably the number one go-to. What's another one? Retaliation. Retaliation. There is another one. Retaliate. I won't ask you how that happens because this is a family gathering. But we've seen those moments, right? Have you ever seen one of those moments that ruins the Christmas gathering because retaliation happens? And usually after retaliation happens, the next year they try avoidance. (laughs) They realize I'm not going to ruin the gathering for everybody. I'm just going to avoid this time. It's going to avoid. I mean, people in that mode are willing to wash toilets, you know, uh, get on the roof and put, you know, I see a bulb that's out up there, Uncle Ted. I can't talk right now. I've got to climb up on the chimney and change that one bulb because the year before they retaliated. What's another one? What's another way? Say it again. Oh, that's a good one. Stuff the anger and then blow up when you get home. Right? Just start yelling at someone. A random somebody. That's good. That's good. You guys are like, you're, you're pros. <laughs> Anybody else? Change the subject. Change the subject. Okay. That, that, that doesn't typically work with the oversharer. They just... Okay. Interrupt. That's good. That, that's less effective. Changing the subject. The gossip doesn't want to change the subject. The gossip is the subject. They're never going to stop talking about it. Anyway... Bourbon. Bourbon. That's true. That's true. These are not helpful ways to engage these people. I just want you to know that's not endorsed by the administration. All right. Thank you very much. Again, if this was a younger crowd, I would have heard pot, but it's not. Okay. So I want to suggest to you this. If you want to, now you may think this is super spiritual. If you want to really engage these people in a meaningful way, be the answer to their prayers. Be the answer to their prayers. And you go, well, how do I do that? You know, do I have like a magic genie lantern 
that I can rub and, and learn their prayers and then answer their prayers, the one wish I have. It, it, let me, I think there's three things you can be. If you, if you will ask God to help you grow in these three things, these three qualities, and I'll show you some real specific ways how these three qualities actually are the answer to anybody's prayers. If you will be humble, if you will be secure, and if you'll be gracious, those people that you encounter will encounter the answer to their prayers. I guarantee. So I want to read, I want you to look with me in the, the book of Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, as usual, we have a Bible provided for you. This church is prepared for your Bible need. And under the chair seat in front of you, there's paperback Bibles. And I want you to look in page 728. It's in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It's a short little story. and it's, it's somewhat familiar, but there's little details in it that I think we just, I just want to point to and just suggest that if you want to be humble... If you want to learn to be secure, if you want to learn to be more gracious, this story unfolds that and unpacks it and offers us how, how we can experience that. So here's the story. This is uh, Jesus' parable of the, of the two men praying in the temple. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, who those were people who were generally respected because of their piety. A Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. Boo, hiss. Remember we did that that time? We're not going to do that today. I don't need that extra audience participation. But at this moment, when I said tax collector, you go, boo, hiss, right? If you had uh, lettuce, old lettuce, you'd throw it at me, right, when I said that. And it says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Boo, hiss. <laughs> I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, and, and, and sometimes in parables, Jesus didn't explain them. But even though this seems kind of obvious, the, the point of the parable, Jesus just wants to make sure we get the point. He says, so I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God for and then he, then he enunciates a principle. It's this principle that, 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 that this is where humility, security, and graciousness come from. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, if you want to be humble, you know, it's often been observed that humility is a rare quality. It's, it's not a common thing. It, I, I jokingly refer to Ted Turner who once said, if I just had a little humility, I'd be perfect. He actually said that. It was in Time Magazine. Uh, and the first difficulty we have when we encounter these challenging people in our life, and, at, and particularly at parties and gatherings, family events, is we find this thing rising up in us, this sense of, I'm, I'm a little better than this person. 
boy, I just thank God I'm not like the oversharer or the gossip or whatever. And it isn't always super obvious, but it's there, isn't it? Don't you just feel a little better than that person? And, and you may, the words, I thank God I'm not like them, may never come out of your mouth, but you think them, right? You think them, because it's just what we do. And so that is, the, that's a huge obstacle. And so Jesus, he says here that there's a solution. Now, what, is, what does humility look like? Uh, what Jesus pointed out was what humility doesn't look like is saying I'm better than somebody else. But the truth is, both people could have been tempted to look at the other person and say, hey, thank God, I'm not like that religious freak who, you know, just is so pious and so whatever. Because people who are skeptical and unbelieving can just be cantankerously self-righteous, just like the religiously self-righteous can. We're all prone to go down that road. It's something that we do as human beings. And I've often said that, you know, in, in political disputes, that uh, people tend to look at the other party, r- racial situations, economic, all kinds of things. We tend to, you know, when we divide ourselves, this superiority mindset is part of it. That one group looks at the other, one person looks at the other and says, I'm, I, I'm just thankful I'm not, I don't suck like they do, right? They're just horrible people. And I hear that constantly. I, I, a friend of mine put something on their Facebook page the other day, and I don't like to call people out publicly. I just wrote them privately. I said, when you put something like that, I just want to, my two cents, you know, you put this on your Facebook page. <laughs> Sometimes people put something on their Facebook page and they say, don't, don't say that you don't like this. I just go, what are you putting on your Facebook page if you don't want people to respond, right? That's like some, you need, you need some help. You need, you need to see somebody. You need to talk about this. But I wrote this person, and they're friends of mine, and I said, here's why I think you putting that kind of a post on your Facebook page isn't helping anything, is it just encourages this inflammatory back-and-forth rhetoric. And it, and it says... In a sense that it, it, it exposes a little sense of this superiority. And, and we're all tempted to it. You understand? But Jesus said, one person here of these two decided, I'm not going to play that game. And instead, because the word humble yourself means to level things. It means to level things out. But it's a choice we have to make. And so what, what this man was able to do was when he stood before God... He didn't, because you can measure your, he, what he didn't do is he didn't measure himself against the person standing next to him. He measured himself against God's standard of what love was. And he knew he failed utterly in some way. And who knows? Maybe he was a, the kind of tax collector who did things the right way, and he wasn't extorting money from people and, and exploiting you know, the, the Roman uh, power behind him to, to rip people off. Maybe he was just doing what he was supposed to do and no more. But even then, all of us fall short. And one of the ways that you puncture that balloon of self-righteousness is it's not by finding someone who obviously is morally broken and comparing yourself to them, and, and you find some way that you feel better about yourself. You look at God and say, God, 
man, I've really fallen short. And that punctures that self-righteousness. So we have to realize that we can't look to people next to us and, and find a sense of approval. That will never give it to you. Because you can also look for people who are doing better than you and think you're doing terrible. And God doesn't, God doesn't evaluate us on human standards. He just doesn't. Jesus is the standard. And that's why he places this. He says two men went up to the temple to pray. So they were going before God. And they were staying in, in the light of God's holiness. And one of them was blinded, and the other one could have been blinded, but he chose to see himself in the light of God's love and truth. And he knew, I just, I failed. And if, if we want to cultivate humility, what Jesus said in this passage, he's, that little promise that he enunciated at the end was really simple. He just said, whoever exalts themselves like the, 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 the pious Pharisee will be humbled. Because even if he couldn't see where he was at, one day he's going to stand before God, or at some point in his life, he's going to be exposed. You know, the, the, I'll, bring, I'll bring it up again, but just a, it's, a, it's a, I think a, a salient point. The whole Me Too phenomena of people getting away with stuff and looking good and everyone even praising them and talking about how wonderful they are, at some point, all of a sudden, the light shines and we realize, man, we cannot tolerate this kind of stuff anymore. And then all the ugliness gets exposed. And it would be better to own that way before you get to that point because you're standing in the light of God's love. And God says that the immoral behavior isn't loving. No matter if everybody thinks it's cool, it's not. It's exploitative. And, you know, we're, we're trying now. You know, people used to not like the idea of having these mores were like my parents used to teach me uh you know you don't treat women this way you do treat women this way and you know in our society today we're, we're kind of reluctant to use that kind of language we think that's you know that's that's archaic but now we're trying to find laws and policies at parties like there there are very very prestigious publications who've had these kinds of interactions between men and women where very prominent members of their staff have had to be let go because of the way they behaved. And so now they are policing their gatherings by saying you can only have two drinks. And you can, you're, we're gonna, when you come to a, one of our parties, we're going to give you two pieces of paper, like two drink tickets. Like you think people aren't going to go around and get the drink tickets from other people. And they're not going to misbehave. But what they're saying is, we do need guidelines. We don't live in a utopia. We live in a fallen world. We have to learn how to respect one another. But we have these ideas that we can, you know, we can ignore what, what's loving and good because that just sounds so you know, Puritan. And, and like we're trying to find rules about consent, like... When someone wants to sleep with someone else, we used to say that was something for marriage. Now we go, we have to have an affirmative, enthusiastic yes before you can sleep with somebody else at a party. And I know some of you are going, what are you talking about, John? Well, you know, there's, <laughs> people are wrestling with this in all kinds of situations, and they, they, they're rejecting God's wisdom, and so they're having to craft 
ideas that are just like, it's, it, people don't realize when they're having these discussions how, how silly it is. But they have, they've rejected, you know, God's wisdom, the, the ideas. And, and so they're having to come to terms with, you can't do that without there being some consequences. It, it, we weren't meant to live that way. There's not freedom in that. The kind of freedom we think we're pursuing, we just don't get there. And we cultivate humility when we refuse this lure of false superiority. When we go, God, I don't want to be anything to what I am in your eyes. Even if I look bad in that person's eyes, or even in my own eyes, I just want to be who I am as you see me. Whatever my flaws are, I know you love me. And I just want to see them. I want to face them. Now, that is a really hard thing to do. And without the promise, if, if, if you're going to be humble, you won't be genuinely humble without the promise of the gospel. You'll just put on humility. It won't, it won't go as deep as it's supposed to go because you won't be doing it out of a response to God's love. You'll be doing it to try to justify yourself because that's what the man who prayed and said, I'm so thankful I'm not like this. He was trying to justify himself before God and say, God, I know I'm better than this person, so I feel good in your sight. I must be good in your sight because I'm better than that person. He was justifying himself, and, and you don't get anywhere doing that. And Jesus said, if you believe this, that if you humble yourself and you, before God, face, you know, wherever, wherever you're at, in his eyes... He will exalt you. That's why Jesus said, this man who humbled himself, he went away justified before God. Which had to surprise everybody in that, in that day and time because they just didn't think that's the way it worked. And a lot of times we don't either. We think we've got to be good people or God won't accept us. But the truth is, no, like Jesus said, nobody's good but God. And that once we own that, and it's hard to do no matter what age you are. You could be a teenager. It's hard to own where we're really at. You could be someone in their 70s, 80s, or, or older, and everything in between. It is really hard to own where we're at. But humility, if we embrace it, becomes an incredible gift for people that we meet who are difficult. It's a real simple way. If, if you're at a party, and someone's misbehaving, and you respond to them as a humble person without judgment, even when, in a sense, they deserve judgment, it's incredibly refreshing for a person to find someone who doesn't treat them that way. And you may think, well, they do need it. And I'll get to that next. You don't let anybody off the hook. But a humble person engages people and doesn't engage them with judgment, doesn't engage them with this sense of superiority. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's this breath of fresh air that people take in and, and it starts changing the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere of a room for a person to be humble, just to walk in humility. And it's one of the only things, if you, you read the Gospels carefully, there's only a few things. I've, I've pointed this out before. It's not my original insight, but that Jesus, one of the only things that Jesus said about who he was, it was he was humble and meek. And those are two qualities in the ancient world, and like they are today. Nobody wants to be humble. They didn't want to be humble back then. We don't want to be humble now. And Jesus said, I'm humble. Now, you may think that sounds not humble, but it's true. It was true about him. And if we believe the gospel, the gospel says that when we humble ourselves, God gives us grace. And so it becomes an incentive to humility. 
Because you're not just going to get hammered when you admit where you're at. God says, I will lift you up. But if you try to lift yourself up without first owning it in totality, you won't be lifted up. So you got a choice. Second, being secure. If you're humbled, here's a wild thing. If you're humble, you, exp- you will begin to be secure because God says, in this promise Jesus made, that I will lift you up. Now, what the gospel says is, with respect to security, is when we're trying to justify ourselves, in other words, when we're trying to get to find security in how we perform in, in any sphere of life, because that's the way the game's played, is you do to be instead of being to do. Jesus says, if you're playing that game where you're trying to perform, you won't ever measure up and you won't ever be secure. But if you humble yourself, you will experience the Father's embrace. If you humble yourself before me, you'll experience God, your Father's embrace, his love for you, right where you are, no matter how you've performed, that God will embrace you and it will give you an increasing sense of security, that I'm a beloved child of God. You know, there's a, there's a saying in, in, in ancient Greece that there was a philosopher named Diogenes who, who was purported to take a lantern and walk all through Greece to find one honest person. And I think, you know, you could take a lantern and go all through Columbus just to find one secure person. Because we're not a very secure lot. Because if you put your security in anything you can lose, you're not going to feel secure. You're never going to measure up. Because you're going to run into someone who's better than you. I heard a pastor once say, when people, lose, leave, uh, when people move from wherever they are to Manhattan, it is a humbling experience. Like people who, who I, I know a couple of people, a couple of friends here in Columbus whose children who are really, really talented uh, in, in terms of the arts, music, theater, they moved to Manhattan and they're still waiting on tables 11 years later. And they were like, you know, top cream of the crop here in Columbus, but everyone moves to Manhattan to make it. And then they spend $2,500 a month on a closet and they find, you know, there's PhDs waiting tables and people who can sing better than them and play the violin better than them. And it's very, very overwhelming. You feel like, oh my gosh, who am I? And it, and it can crush you. But if, I, I know friends who, whose children have done that and they're, they're, they're thriving because they're secure. They, grew up, they had this sense of, I'm a beloved child of God, not that it doesn't matter how well I perform in, in, in terms of my vocation or life, but it doesn't crush me if I'm not the best at everything or the best or, or the best person in the room. It's, it's humbling to, to find that out. But the cool thing about if you humble yourself before God is he says, I'm going to give you a new identity through Jesus that you're my beloved son or daughter and that nothing can take that away. That it will be something that you can grow in the security in for the rest of your life. And it will change everything. It changes everything. You don't have to play the games that people play. Now, the, the thing that... There's a story of... of uh, I'll give you a picture of this. There's a story in the book of Acts where Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel, essentially. And he goes through a series of sort of trials with different Roman officials. 
And in, uh, let's see, it was in Acts 24. In Acts 24, he comes before this one person who, whose name was Felix, and he was a Roman official. And it says that uh, Felix was well acquainted with the way, with Christianity. And he, he said when uh, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under his guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of him. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus. So now Paul was trying to uh, stand before this judge and give an account of himself and for why the judge should let him off the hook because the charges against them were false, etc., etc. Now you think when when you're in chains and you could perhaps lose your life, that you would sort of find a way to ingratiate yourself to the judge. Like, put, put proverbially, your, your best foot forward, right? Uh, your honor. And, and you know, you would, you, would, you, would, you would phrase everything in a way uh, to, to make this person like you. Here's what Paul did. It says, when he had his chance to have the audience with Felix, it says, Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Hell! Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now, Paul had this sense of security and identity that he knew who controlled everything. It wasn't this judge. There was a greater judge. It wasn't the judge who, and this official who represented the Roman emperor, the king. There was a king above him who placed that person on their seat of authority. Paul had this sense of, I know who I am. And when you engage this, the people who are so difficult sometimes to, to relate to, if, if you're, the, the, to whatever degree you're secure... Is going to change how you relate to them. Because here's two things that you need to do if you're going to relate to difficult people. You have to be able to set healthy boundaries, and you have to be able to say something to them that's true that they need to hear. And if you aren't secure, you're going to behave and engage them in, in ways that enable them. And you're not supposed to enable bad behavior. And I don't mean that you're the, you know, you're the family policeman. That, you know, just pull it over there, buddy. <laughs> You know, put the red light on your head and just walk around the room, you know, pulling people over. You don't have to do that. But when you're in situations where it's appropriate, you need to call people on the carpet and say, listen, when, when you know, Aunt Sophie is talking about everybody and gossiping about all this stuff, you know, you, 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 you gently take Aunt Sophie into the kitchen and say, Aunt Sophie, zip it, you know. I don't want to hear that anymore. It's, it's not kind for you to say that. But if you're not secure and you need Aunt Sophie's approval or people who Aunt Sophie is related to, you need their approval, you're not going to do it. And if the more you're grounded in your identity as a beloved child of God and you're not beholden to everyone around you to, to prop you up, not that people, what people think of you isn't important, but... What's the most important? And I I guarantee you, this is a super practical point. If we believe the gospel that says, Jesus died in your place, 
because you tried to put your identity in things that you could lose, and Jesus was willing to go to the cross for you so that you could have an identity as a beloved child of God, as a gift of God's grace. When you, do, when you believe that, something starts changing inside you. And it's, instead of, you know, the way that we tend to re, re, respond to these people and how, how, like, overwhelmed by their behavior we become and compromised by it, we become the answer to their prayer is, people, 